0: Space Radio. Roger, restart. Three, two, one. Mark. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Greetings, spacers. Welcome to The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson, and we are on iRock Space Radio. We're part of the I Heart radio network. Um, those of you who listen regularly, you already know all that stuff, but we have to say it all the time. Um, you can follow me at, at Rocket Rick, by the way, on the Twitterdom. And um, so tonight we have a, 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 or today, depending on where you are on this little bubble we call the earth, um, when you hear this, but uh, I have a great guest. Um, those of you who do listen know I have an interest in policy and, uh, you know, these kinds of things as we begin to move Um, off the mother world here but uh, then there are people who are like really experts at it and we have one of those with us today Um, Michelle Hanlon is the co-founder of For All Moonkind Uh, full disclosure I'm I'm on the advisory board of of For All Moonkind which shows you how I feel about it Um, and um, is a professor of I'm gonna get this wrong, but um we're gonna come back to that part. <laughs> but her background is amazing. Um, I mean, Yale, Georgetown University, McGill, um, just an amazing background. Um, and uh, you know, we'll we maybe we'll talk a little bit about how we met in the past, but for moon kind is is focused on. Uh, as I am in many ways, how we try and get it right as we go out there, and I'm not going to explain it because that's why you're here, Michelle. So, without any further ado, let's. Uh, I'm, I'm welcoming Michelle Hanlon. How you doing, Michelle?
1: I'm doing great, Rick. Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, my pleasure. You and I have been dancing around this for a while, trying to make it happen. So, uh, you were one of my early, early thoughts in terms of uh, getting you on here. So, um. So I guess the first thing to do is to have you um, just explain, for all moon kind, and, and you know, like, why did you create it? What's the story behind it, and what's it for?
1: So I'm going to take us back a, a, a little ways because um, I think it's important to know that I spent 25 years as a mergers and acquisitions attorney before I became a space lawyer, and so I think and it's important to know that because I am a deal. I'm not a deal maker. I'm the person who deals the deal. I get it done. And so that's always been sort of my mantra. I, I get stuff done. And um, when, I, when my sons went off to college and I thought about what I'd been doing in life, um, uh, they, they had sparked in me sort of or reignited my love for space. And so I went to McGill to earn my advanced degree in air and space law. While I was sitting in my little, you know, studio apartment in Montreal because you had to be there in person, freezing, but I had a great view of uh Mont Royal. I was I was listening to the news and um then uh the then head of the European Space Agency, and of course Jan Werner, um, was in China mm-hmm. yeah. and he was yeah. he was pushing his moon village concept, which is a wonderful concept, right? That we should all be going Absolutely. to the moon together and they had a press release and um At one point during the press release, he said, jokingly, of course, China, you must join us as we go back to the moon, if only to take down those American flags. So to be completely honest, my very first reaction was a very guttural American patriotic, you know, can't do that. That's that's America, right? And so I, I immediately thought, well, okay, I'm studying space law. Let me figure this out. And I realized, you know what? They can do that. Um, And there's nothing protecting any of our heritage in, in, in space on the moon. And when you think about heritage, I want you to think much more broadly because it's not just about America, it's about humanity. And you think the first human object to impact another celestial body was a Soviet object, Luna 2. The first human made object to make a soft landing on another celestial body was Luna 9, also Soviets. The first object, the first rover to be able to um, operate on the far side of the moon is Chang'e four, Chinese, um, and then of course, yes, the the first human to step on the moon um, was Apollo eleven with um, Neil and Buzz, right? And so, look at looking at that, I was really sort of gutted that it's not protected. Because here on Earth, it's like, um, you know, this is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. That's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. This is a UNESCO World Village. This is protected. Uh, this is some preserved somehow or other as well. And none of that applies in space at all um, because of vagaries of space law, because you can't claim property in space by sovereignty or any other means. And so if you say, hey, let's protect Apollo or let's protect a Luna site, you're claiming property. And so that that was sort of the start of it but you know what it's really become Rick and and this is I think why we we are sort of uh synergized I hate that word but you know we see eye to eye on this because it's it's not about the United States or China or Russia it's about humanity we don't get we did not get to the moon based solely on american innovation and expertise absolutely a lot of it was um a lot of it was the diversity that we have in the United States We don't get to the moon without somebody standing up on two feet in Tanzania, right? Our common ancestor had to stand up and free our hands to make tools and to carry things. We don't get to the moon without math. You know, the first signs of math were 18,000 years ago in the Congo, where there's a baboon bone with hash marks on it and a piece of quartz attached to it. We don't get to the moon without glass. Mesopotamia, somebody in Mesopotamia was like, "Oh, I'm going to heat up some sand and make something transparent. So we don't get to we don't get to the moon without all of the knowledge of the astronomers of all of that passion of people who looked up at the stars in awe. Um, so those bootprints, those first pieces of human material on the moon, are really a celebration of our entire human evolution. Look how far we got, and that's why it's important to protect those bootprints.
0: Wow, I love that, and we do get along, but we're we're gonna have some sparks later. I promise you. Uh, but the um the point you're making too is uh, to be really clear. You're not talking and uh, you are, and you aren't talking about the metaphorical flags. You're you're talking about the physical locations on the moon. Correct. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the Apollo site and, you know, and, and I remember when I first ran into you guys, I think you had a booth mm-hmm. and you were going for it. And, you know, and it was this idea of, um, uh, Uh, I'm just a tourist. I hate that word. You know, I hate that word. Um, But this case, it applies in its most negative sense, right? Um, I've always said that a tourist to me is somebody (laughs) like some big guy in a Hawaiian shirt with three cameras around their neck, a trail of orangina bottles pissing on a monument, right? And that's exactly what you're saying we we shouldn't have in space. Um, So you guys put this plan together and you said, okay, we're going to figure out a way to try and take care of these symbolic human moments that are frozen in time literally in space mm-hmm. so what what happened next how did how did um, how did that manifest
1: so this is what why the mna lawyer part is important because my husband and i decided we're going to change that we're going to protect all of those sites on the moon right we're going to and and not so much uh you know there are 110 sites on the moon with human material on them. We don't need to protect 110 sites on the moon, but we need a process to decide whether we're going to memorialize, recognize, protect, preserve, whatever you want to call it. And so, you know, the longest deal I ever worked on took about two years to close. And so I thought, okay, two years, I can do this. Um, This was 2017. And we thought, you know what? We are going to set a deadline for ourselves. We are going to get an international Convention on Protecting Cultural Heritage in Outer Space, in time for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, because I thought that could happen, and and that's what we want to do is we want to implement a treaty that will actually govern this the way we have treaties o- on Earth uh, protecting heritage. 193 nations have signed the UNESCO World Heritage Convention, so we know states recognize the importance of protecting heritage. Now, what we didn't realize, and this was this shows you how I really did sort of break into space law from nowhere. I had never heard of the International the um, Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. I had never heard of the Office of Outer Space Affairs. I had no idea. But I, I when I started doing the research, I realized, oh, this is where I have to go. I'm going to go to the UN copois and I'm going to talk some sense into these people. Um, and so we actually, you were at one of my very first presentations. We met at a UN conference in Dubai. Um, where I shared this idea. Um, And from there, I was encouraged by the then head of the Office of Outer Space uh, Space Affairs, um, Simonetta Pippo, to become a permanent observer of the Committee of the COPO, I'm going to call it, um, and use that as a platform to advocate for the treaty that we want. Because for many people, for many nations, the only place where we can make space law is at the UN. And so that's what we did. And we went around and the first time I went, I literally went to every delegate that was there, shook their hands, gave them my business card, introduced the concept. We had the opportunity to give these presentations, introducing the concept. Um, and, uh, and everyone was in awe. Everyone loved it. This is a great idea. Of course, we want to protect this stuff. Absolutely. And then they said, but how? You know, you, you know just the very the, the fundamental precept of space law, as you well know, is. Freedom of exploration and use, freedom of access. You have the Article One of the Outer Space Treaty says absolutely you can do whatever you want in space, and the only things that that sort of restrict that are Article Four, which say you can't put weapons of mass destruction or nuclear weapons in space, and Article Nine, which is this due regard provision, which is you know this big jelly like I don't know due regard, what does it mean? Um, and so everyone's like, if you protect something in space. You are violating Article 1 of the Outer Space Treaty by making it inaccessible. And there's a big fear of going down that road. There's a, a big concern about how are we going to do this? And everyone's just thinking, look, let's deal with orbital debris. Let's deal with dark, quiet skies. We can push this can down the road for a while. And so um, that's we've been pushing this can down the road. We had uh, We've had two great victories, I will call them. Um, In the United States, we got the One Small Step Act passed. um, And that is a law that sets. so NASA has these guidelines um, that are not binding and not enforceable. And they uh, were um, implemented in 2011. And they basically say, hey, if you're going to the moon, can you just sort of not get within two kilometers of some of these sites? And so the One Small Step Act, we had written to be binding on U.S parties, anybody, anybody from the United States going to the moon, Um, it was watered down. So it's only if you are contracting with NASA, you have to abide by the NASA guidelines. But, you know, it's a start. And then our second big win is the Artemis Accords. Section nine of the Artemis Accords, now signed by 25 countries, says recognize it's the first multilateral agreement ever to recognize that we have cultural heritage history in outer space and that it should be protected. And so that, that's, you know, I thought we would be out of business in two years, but, um, I am, I am the squeaky wheel. You look up, look it up in the dictionary. You'll see my picture.
0: (laughs) I was going to say something clever, like in space, nobody can hear you squeak, but they hear you. The, um, oh, so many ways to go with this. The, I, I, you know, when I saw you guys, I was like, welcome to space. You know, well, welcome to international space, right? I remember testifying in 95, calling for all transportation to and from the station to be privately provided. It us only 17 years to to do that. And the laws were already kind of falling into place. Um, But so we have a lot of work to do to get where you want to go. And we have these first couple of steps. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back and then talk a little about the Artemis Accords, there's a ramification of the um, the first one you mentioned with the two kilometers that I want to talk about and what that may mean internationally, rights of way and stuff like that, um, and uh, uh, non-interference, what that could mean in, in certain other cases. But this is, yeah. and And, you know, I remember when I met you guys and I saw this, I was like, oh, yeah, I like this. This is cool. This is cool. Because you went in there and you were like, you're rolling into a world you don't know anything about and you know about your world law and you have this level of common sense, but also you had a shine. You guys had a shine to you. Like, okay, these, this is sharp. This makes sense. Right. Um, so I was excited immediately uh, when I met you guys there, I I gave a little talk myself at that same thing. And, um, they, they basically agreed not to let me into any other meetings um, after that. So, so I'm glad you got in there. Anyway, look, let's take a break. We'll come back in just a minute, and we will continue our talk with Michelle Hanlon. You are listening to iRock Space Radio. This is the Space Revolution. We're part of the iHeart family, and um, we'll be right back. Welcome back, Spacers. Rick Tumlinson here, iRock Space Radio, the Space Revolution. We have a wonderful guest, Michelle Hanlon from All Moon. Kind, not mankind, Moonkind, which I love that name, by the way. And we are talking about this idea of, uh, we're, we're starting with the conversation of protecting, shall we say, historically significant, uh, sacred, if it is careful, un, uncareful use of the word there, sites uh, for humanity. So, Michelle, you're, you're rolling in, you've got this idea. People are liking it in general. I'd love to hear the reactions you've gotten from the space power, the three space powers that you mentioned that have objects on the moon, um, the U S i.e. NASA, the Russians and, um, China. Can you categorize them? Are they the same? Uh, any, any interesting differences between them?
1: So from a formal standpoint, Mm -hmm. the silence is deafening. Mm. Um, the, there is so much more enthusiasm and support and excitement from developing nations that have nothing on the moon or anywhere in space than it is than it are from the big three and and a lot of it is because you know people forget I think if if you what was it yesterday um, spaceX the 200th time that they recovered their um, their rocket right um, people forget in the developed countries of course how amazing it <laughs> is what we do but People who are sort of learning about it from places like South Africa or Zimbabwe um, or Indonesia are so enthralled by the whole thing, right? I mean, it, and it's almost like it, it still lives. That 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 Apollo, that legend of Apollo, that the amazing feat of these men of these humans lives on, and people are still inspired by them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, everywhere, Iran. You know, people just come to me. Absolutely, you know, this is this. I grew up with this. I remember this, even though they're twenty years old. There's no possible way they could remember it. So it's really, you know, this understanding of this inspiration, and also from countries that have have had their cultural heritage taken from them. So, for example, South Korea. A lot of South Koreans really they are very feel very strongly, viscerally, that we need to protect because they had all of their cultural heritage or most of it destroyed by the Japanese, right? Mm-hmm. And it is a sense, you know, this is a sense of ourselves, of our humanity. Um, and we, we call ourselves for all moon kind, because the moon is the cradle of our spacefaring future. And so in many ways, all of our communities that are going to exist well beyond the moon will be born from, from the moon, unless they are Moonkind. And also to be clear, we want to protect heritage everywhere in space, not just on the moon. The U.S. position, the formal U.S. position, I think, is driven by the fact that they don't want to be seen. The U.S. doesn't want to be seen as making some sort of claim of territory. It is very hard, right, to say we we should protect Apollo because it feels like you're just protecting your stuff, right? Uh, the the Russians formally have only engaged with with us once or twice, um, and they were the ones who really sort of honed right down into the law. The violation of Article One. the violation of Article Two. Now, this was several years ago, long before they invaded the Ukraine. So, um, you know, now now there's no conversation whatsoever. Um, and China has been has been quiet. We do have a, a fellow Advisory Council member, Guo Wong, is a Chinese national, a very prominent Chinese space lawyer. And so, I know that there's interest. I when I talk to the UN, I always always mention the three together: Luna, Changer, Apollo, and Honestly, what we want to do is have a resolution. And we, you know, the way treaty, the way this process works, as you well know, is you get a resolution and then you get a treaty. And so we, want, we just want a resolution that says, hey, there's something special about these three sites, Luna 2, Chang'e 4, and Apollo 11. Let's just, let's just agree to that as an international community. And I can build off of that foundation, but nobody wants to do that. Uh, and I think I think it's so wrapped up in. I mean, I, it's been to me right now. It, it's incredibly scary, but really fascinating to watch China and to to hear what they say out loud, because I guarantee every single one of their words is so carefully thought out
0: mm-hmm.
1: with this with with a, a goal that is a hundred years down the road. Like every speech they have is pointing to this goal a hundred years from now. Um, And I think, uh, as a lawyer, a lot of the the challenge is trying to figure out what what it is that they're doing. And so I feel like, you know, I have been approached informally by all all three nations. I have uh, normal citizens from all three nations on our advisory council. I've been told that nobody's against this, and but but nobody's willing to say something out loud at this point, other than the United States, which sort of in the Artemis Accords did this sort of Oh there's stuff out there. We have to figure out how to identify it,
0: yeah, I mean, man, there's just too many places to go with all of this. We're looking at a situation where it would seem to make sense to simply extend and expand the rules we have for heritage sites on the planet, right? Just make a version of that right and and I'm, let me let me just break it down that way and we'll we'll do this piece by piece so. Why not take these sites and roll them into that? Is there what's the objection to just putting them into World Heritage Sites?
1: In order to get a site designated as a World Heritage Site, you can you have to nominate it, mm-hmm. but you can only nominate a site that's within your territory. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you nominate a site, you're claiming territory.
0: Mm-hmm. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, this is, this is so. So, listeners, friends, spacers, these are the kinds of challenges we have as as we're opening the frontier. Nobody's ever done any of this before. It's one thing I hope you're getting from many of the the different programs here and the conversations I'm having with guests is that it is all new, and even something where, like just now, I'm I'm making a, a common sense, as we would say, we're doing air quotes, by the way, you can't see them if you're listening, but a common sense, you know, oh why don't we just extend heritage sites? Oh, but you can't extend a heritage site uh, or call for it or nominate it if it's not in your territory. And if you do, that means you're saying the moon is in your territory. So these are the kind of things that folks like Michelle are, are trying to, I don't know, it's almost like you're deconstructing and then reconstructing a new, a new operational activity within the new paradigm. Right. So I run into this all the time too, in the terms of, um, uh, all the different attacks and things like that we get about opening the frontier. And usually I'll let them ramble on for a while and then I'll say, well, you know, everything you just said is true under the old paradigm. We're operating in a new one, right? So the other point too is I, I think, tell me if I'm right or wrong. I think there's a subtext here that the three powers or the two and a half, if, if you count China and America and Russia, is whatever they are right now, the, the two big powers on the moon are afraid that anything they say is setting a precedent. I'll just say it is going to bite them in the ass later. Right. No matter what they do, unlimited or limited. Right. So speak to that.
1: So it's really fascinating because we have this provision in the Outer Space Treaty, Article Nine, due regard, right? You must implement your activities in space with due regard to the corresponding interests of other states. And so again, you're gonna air quote our common sense. You know, generating debris is not is not showing due regard for the activities of others in space. Um conducting an ASAT test that creates a huge debris field that threatens station and our astronauts in station does not exhibit due regard others in space. So an interesting thing happened um, in 2021. China sent a note for a very formal note, diplomatic note to the United Nations and said, dear United Nations, under Article 5 of the Outer Space Treaty, which is the provision that says, if you see a phenomena in space that would be dangerous to humans in space, you have an obligation to tell the United Nations about it so that the United Nations can tell the world. So China went and said, uh, "Dear United Nations, we're writing to you under Article Five of the Outer Space Treaty, because there is a phenomenon that is putting humans in danger in space." Do you do you remember what that phenomenon was? No, go ahead. Um- it was Starlink. Oh yeah, it was yes. Elon Musk. Yes, yes, okay, yes. So China complained that the the two Starlink satellites were got too close to their their space station Tiangong, and and so. Uh, wrote this formal complaint and very helpfully reminded the United States as if they'd forgotten that, you know, under Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, nations are responsible for the activities of their nationals. And so it's really interesting because, okay, you can see what the the issue is. Yeah, you don't want your space station to be hit by a Starlink satellite, (laughs) but why did they use Article 5? Why didn't they use Article 9? and it's precisely for the reason you said because it's going to come everyone is afraid that it's going to come back and bite them in the ass nobody is using article 9 nobody wants to figure out what due regard actually means because it has it, it, it's been defined once in an international uh, arbitration and it's a balancing test it's totality of the circumstances you look at these rights you look at those rights you look at what happened it, there's no bite line rule there's no there's no sense of what it means or what it says. And so think about, um, you know, and I, I, I call it the legal cha-ching provision. Think about how long lawyers can argue about the circumstances of any event and keep it in court for decades before we decide who actually was in the wrong with that. And so there is a huge fear of due regard at this sovereign level because once you open that Pandora's box, everyone's just going to pounce. You didn't have due regard for this. You didn't have due regard for that. Um, so China used that Article Five, um, saying their humans, their astro their taikonauts were in danger. Um, and just for the record, the U.S. responded and basically said, "Hey, we were tracking, and you are you are getting hysterical because we weren't that close. And by the way, you know, <laughs> next time don't run to mommy and daddy. Why don't you just give us a call, and we can and we can settle this like grownups."
0: Yeah, and. Also, obviously ignores how many times they have to maneuver the International Space Station to avoid debris, which may or may not be trackable to something that China blew up years ago or whatever. I mean, yeah.
1: You know. Oh, and the irony because this happened, this note verbal uh was delivered three or four weeks after the last Russian ASAT test. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they totally ignored the fact that the station was in danger because of debris from their ally and just, you know. Use this Article Five to say, ah, you know, ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, Starling.
0: Oh man, you gotta love diplomacy. Um,
1: <laughs> so, so we're
0: in this situation where, and and by the way, listeners, um, if if you care about uh, our future on the frontier, take a look at the Outer Space Treaty, and um, there there are other documents, but that's probably the big kahuna, which hasn't been my favorite, I have to say, but um, it's what we've got. You know, it is what we've got. The Outer Space Treaty, by the way, listeners, was um, created in the 60s when you basically had two major space powers going for it, um, U.S. and Soviet Union. Uh, In fact, I'm not going to do that. Michelle, you're the professor. Please tell us, if you could, where the Outer Space Treaty come from.
1: So it actually, you know, it has its roots in Dwight D. D. Eisenhower when uh, after World War II you know, what? But a lot of people choose to ignore the fact that, you know, we got our rocket technology from Nazi Germany. The U.S. in Operation Paperclip accepted a lot of German um, immigrants. Russia just decided to kidnap them. Um, but we each had uh, our own band of, of engineers and the space race began. You know, who's going to get that rocket up there first? And of course, uh, Russia got, uh, Soviet Union got there first with Sputnik. And President Eisenhower had a choice at that point. The, as, as all listeners know, you know, a country owns its airspace. You can't fly into Russia. You know, if, if a, a U.S. plane were to overfly Russia without permission, it, get, it could get shot down. And that would be entirely legal under international law because you violated their sovereign territory. So Sputnik goes over around the world, right? And President Eisenhower decides, I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to say you violated my sovereign territory, I'm just going to let it go. And why Why would he do that? Well, because he wanted to fly his own satellites around the world as well, right? And so actually um, Russia was, so the Soviet Union was quite taken aback because they hadn't intended that consequence. They actually were going to argue that, you know, th- they own all of the space above the Soviet Union um, as sovereign space. And so tried to argue, well, the free overflight only for scientific purposes. But of course, when, um, when nobody objected Dwight D. Eisenhower led that deafening silence of not objecting to the orbit of Sputnik. It became what we call uh, instant customary international law. Space is free for exploration and use by all. And so that that fundamental sentence, that fundamental, those words that underlie everything we do in space came from that moment from Sputnik. Then, um, and and Eisenhower actually sent uh, Lyndon Johnson as Senator Johnson to the UN to argue that we needed a committee on the peaceful uses of outer space and that we needed a treaty. Um, and again, really important to note that Eisenhower a Republican sent Johnson a Democrat. You know, we the roots of the space policy in the United States is nonpartisan. And that's something we should always remember. And it goes all the way back to these decisions made by President Eisenhower. But the United States was intent on keeping the peace in space. And thankfully, even though we were in the midst of a Cold War, the Soviet Union was as well. And so when we look at the Outer Space Treaty, which you don't love, but I, I, I love, mm-hmm. what, is the, what is the purpose of it? The purpose was solely to keep the peace in space. They were not thinking about people landing on the moon. They weren't thinking about, you know, remote sensing satellites. We had like maybe four satellites in the air when we were negotiating this treaty. No concept of all the th- amazing things we could do and get from space. The entire process was intended to just make sure this Cold War didn't escalate into this, into space. And so is it a flawed treaty? No, it does what it does very well. Mm-hmm. Um, well, mostly well, um, but that, that is the birth of the treaty. And I just, I, I'm going to have to plug my, my little booklet because this all of space law fits in my hand. I teach law. I teach space law at the university of Mississippi. You should go to our website because you can own all of space law And what is the title? Um, in your hand. Or those in audio. It's a, it's a space law, quick reference book. And What is remarkable about space law is the Outer Space Treaty is two pages long, Mm -hmm. and yet it defines, it is the foundation of everything we do. And that is deeply frustrating for a lot of people like you, Rick. But I see it from the point of view of, look, there are so many conflicts within it. There are so many gaps in it. This is our opportunity you know, they did their job back in the 60s. They kept the peace in space pretty well. That's our job to take the next steps in space. And that doesn't mean forsake the treaty. It means to fill in those gaps in the treaty. Great. Come back with my rebuttal.
0: No, I won't. No, I won't. We'll, we'll just take a break and uh, we'll be right back. You are listening to iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio Radio Network. Um, it's the space revolution. And uh, with, you can't have revolutions without legal minds involved. So... We have a great one here, Michelle Hanlon, and um, we will be right back. Welcome back, Spacers. This is iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio Network. My name is Rick Tomlinson. You are listening to The Space Revolution. Our guest today is legal expert for the solar system, Michelle Hanlon. Just the solar system? Okay, you can have it all. It's all yours. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to say specifically, because then I would be hemmed in in some future treaty. So uh, we'll take it case by case. So, look, I we had talked about uh, I was having you discuss the Outer Space Treaty and you were kind of poking at me because I have poked at the, uh, the Outer Space Treaty um, in the past. And my challenge with it largely has been that and part of this is to be clear, part of this is before folks like yourself had started showing up and until somebody like a Michelle Hanlon shows up and and folks like you and some of the folks that worked on the Artemis Accords and some of our, excuse me, other associates in the field, a lot of it was being used. The language was being used to discuss inhibiting activities in space. And, and then the narrative about the outer space treaty was that it had been put in place to sort of inhibit empire building in the solar system by the two empires of the time, the Soviet empire and the American empire, the developing nations were in there. It was a very UNE type of thing. Um, and it was, it was making me crazy because, you know, article nine, um, which, you know, gets into, uh, I hope it's article nine. Um, I'm going to sound silly otherwise, but it gets into use and, and all of that. Um, And I was hearing from people, academics, you know, that we can't, you can't have anything in space. You can't claim anything. You can't own anything because if you're a citizen of a nation, therefore it is considered to be appropriation by the nation because you're a citizen of that nation. And I looked at that and it was, it was just making me nuts because it's, it's basically um, telling people that you can't, can't homestead, you know, things like that. As you know, I was doing asteroid mining. Uh, We were a little early, you know. We helped change the law. We helped change some of the policy and the conversation. Uh, The two companies, um, Deep Space Industries and Planetary Resources. That's actually when I met you. Was I was over there talking about that um, in UAE. So that that's the issue for me. You you have come at it from a new angle, in that you're showing you're looking at what it enables. But but frankly, as recently as you know, within a couple of years after I met you, there were still the majority of people out there internationally were using it as an inhibition to say that it, it basically says you can't do anything, especially when they run into an evil free enterpriser like myself, you know, who wants to go out there and figure out how to use the resources. Now, you and I do agree. and um, I think we agree on, on far more than we might think. Um, it, it's kind of fun to poke back and forth, but we do agree that, at a base level, people should have the right to use resources in space, correct?
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and I, I would actually take it much farther than that. I, um, take it know, away. Article three says international law applies in space, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, UN declaration of human rights, article 17, every individual has the right to own property that doesn't disappear because you happen to be in space. And then if you look at the construct of the article two, and and I have spent a lot of time looking at it, It says a a state party to the treaty, okay, a state party to the treaty uh, cannot claim territory by appropriation, by claim of sovereignty, by appropriation or by any other means. So it is definitely looking at the concept of sovereignty. A state cannot claim territory in space. I don't think that that applies to individuals. That's that's the way I interpret Article 2. Um, because it, the way it's constructed, and then when you think about, you know, this Article 6, which is that provision which says, you know, the, as the a nation has to make sure its its nationals abide by the uh, Outer Space Treaty. It doesn't say that. It says um, their actions conform to the Outer Space Treaty. Conform is an odd word. It doesn't say abide by, right? Yeah. So. There's these things in there that you have to really think about, and and this is again we have this opportunity to interpret. And as you mentioned with the Artemis Accords and and Gabriel's Twenty and Mike Gold and and the fabulous work you guys did in getting the Asteroid Act passed, we have now sort of a consensus that okay, you can extract resources and use them, so long as you're not claiming territory, right. Mm-hmm. Um, So we have in the the Artemis Accords, 25 nations saying you can extract resources and use them. That says that in the Artemis Accords. We have the laws of the United States, the laws of Luxembourg, the laws of UAE, and the laws of Japan, which all say their nationals can extract and use. And I'm betting, (laughs) I I would take any bet all day long, that China is also going to support that construct because China wants to build a base. And they're not going to send the, the same bricks that they used to build the wall, the the Great Wall of China, right? Because it's too heavy. They're going to be using resources from space as well. So it's just a common sense interpretation that you can extract and claim those resources, when, you know, out of the ground. And then you look at the other way lawyers interpret is they look at uh, later treaties and to see what, what language was modified. So what treaty came after the Outer Space Treaty that talks about property? The Moon Agreement, the dreaded Moon Agreement, you know, that um, which which has only 18 signatories, now 17 because Saudi Arabia is actually pulling pulling out of it. So less signatories in the Artemis Accords. The Moon Agreement actually outright says you and your non-governmental entities cannot own property and you can't extract any resources until, until we figure out how to do that and you get to share the benefits and everything. So what does that tell us? that tells us that the Outer Space Treaty doesn't say that. Mm. So that's the way we interpret. And that's how we know that the Outer Space Treaty doesn't do what the Moon Agreement does. Therefore, we have to interpret it differently.
0: So you're going backwards with the precedent, in a sense. You're, you're saying it literally precedes... Because the... the mm-hmm. negotiation.
1: Yeah, because the, the negotiators of the Moon Agreement were like, oh, we messed up in the Outer Space Treaty. We should have said this. Uh-huh. Then we know the Outer Space Treaty doesn't say that. And then the Outer
0: Space Treaty is considered to have failed, in a sense, uh, as a global
1: guideline. The, no, the Moon Agreement is... I mean, I the, mean moon, the agreement. moon Agreement. The outer I misspoke. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I totally misspoke. In, in your dreams, right yeah, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, actually, yeah, I'm with moon, you.
0: I'm right with you. Yeah. I, I meant the Moon Agreement has yeah. failed to, to garner yeah. the support necessary. Therefore, it is superseded or there's more power or enforcement in terms of the Outer Space Treaty and what it says.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So we we know that the Outer Space Treaty does something less than what the Moon Agreement did. And since the Moon Agreement said you can't extract and you can't, you know, individuals can't own, we know that the Outer Space Treaty does not say that.
0: Okay. You and I are, this is great. We're having a conversation we probably should have had a couple of years ago, just like offline. You know, we're having it in front of the world here in a sense, because I'm actually liking your position more and more than I did before. And the the Outer Space Treaty. Thank you very much. And so there's so many different uh, possibilities moving. And Like you were talking about a a little while ago, the the one that talks about two kilometers of, of, Mm of area around a heritage site. One of the things I've talked to friends about, and I'm, I'd love to hear your opinion about this, is, um, you know, I do a little bit of work with Space Force um, on the, uh, we're called the DOG, the Doctrine Organization Group. We're working at the strate- strategic level, as some ex-guy used to say. And I, I've said to folks, look, we could have China. And by the way, I want to be very, very clear whenever I talk about China or Russia. I love the Chinese people. I love the heritage of China. I respect it. I do not respect people who feel they own other people. I don't respect entities whose people have not really chosen those leaders or don't respect the situation that leads to that leadership. And I um, I want to see a free China. And, um, and I literally have the Tiananmen guy with grocery bags on my refrigerator right now. It's one of my heroes, because I think I have the whole Don Quixote thing going on along with that guy. But I want to be very clear about that. And so the Chinese government, uh, the PRC, um, the, I could see them landing on the moon. And, you know, for those who follow the show, we know we talked about ice at the bottom of the craters of the poles. That's where they're deposited. That's where sunlight has never hit. Uh, um, and um, there's the, those are the gold mines resource gold mines of the moon. And we could see a a Chinese research station put on the edge of one of those craters. And I'm using definite big gigantic air quotes here, a research station put on the edge of the crater. And then they could say, well, there's a treaty that says um, you can't interfere with anything within two kilometers of our research station. And then without Ever claiming without ever declaring they own it, without ever planting the Chinese flag, they probably wouldn't be able to resist themselves. But without ever doing that, they would in fact de facto own all the ice at the bottom of that crater. Speak to me about that scenario.
1: I'm I'm nodding my head vigorously for the listeners. Now uh, you can't hear that. So first of all, let me reiterate what you said about the Chinese people. My mom is Chinese. Um, she has the distinct, unique event of having to flee China twice. Her family fled in 1949, and then she was evacuated out in 1989. And so, you know, I feel obviously very much for the Chinese people, my people. But Absolutely. This is, and this is why it's so scary with respect to heritage. And this is, you know, the my understanding is that when the NASA put together those guidelines in 2011, they were put together in reaction to the Google Lunar X Prize. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you recall, one of the bonus prizes for the Google Lunar X Prize was to get close to the Apollo 11 landing site and maybe grab something from it, right? And that's when NASA said, "Wait a minute, what are you doing?" Um, And they came up with these. Very quickly came up with these guidelines. Um, Phil Metzger was involved, you know, wonderful uh, planetary geologist. Um, they had archaeologists involved, but they didn't have any diplomats involved. And so, you know, basically we have NASA, the first organization in the world, suggesting that maybe we ought to have safety zones somewhere. And so that was, that's really the first sort of instance where this concept of safety zones have, has come into play. So it's really dangerous, right? Because from a heritage standpoint, you don't want every nation to be able to just claim heritage. Like, oh, this is my heritage. Can't can't get close. I'm not claiming territory. I just don't want you to ruin my heritage. And think about if if you, like Luna 2, carried with it a sphere of medallions and the medallions were supposed to sort of spread across the territory of the moon. And why would they do that? Well, because then they would, you know, those would be the medallions because one of the other, you know, you can't harmfully interfere. You're right. That's right in the Outer Space Treaty. So what does that mean? So, of course... There is a huge fear. Whoever gets there first, um, and this is this is sort of this race now, because whoever gets there first is going to say whether it's the United States or whether it's China, they're going to say, "Don't come too close to us," because you're going to ruin our equipment, and they're going to be right because there is the regolith on the moon is very damaging, and you cannot get too close, and you would have li- you would be liable for damage caused, and so we need to we need to get international agreement on what level of risk these lunar bases, lunar research stations, whatever, need or need to deal with. Because if you have people just deciding, like China saying, oh, wow, you know, our instruments are really delicate. So we need a 20 kilometer radius and don't come close. And then, and then they'll, they'll put, they'll build things. I mean, look what they did with the Spratly Islands. Yes. There's our, there's our, there is our, our model of the Chinese strategic mind. They're going to Build something there and, and the international community is going to say, wait, that's too big or you shouldn't have done that. And China will say, OK, and keep doing it.
0: Right, right. It's um, <laughs> I, I call it uh, a combination of uh, Japanese research whaling, more air quotes, and, uh, and Chinese island building. Right. Because uh, the, Nap- the, the, the Japanese formally uh, don't commercially hunt whales. They do it for research, but you can buy whale meat on the shelf. You know, so it's an, it's an economic imperative wrapped in this sort of researchy. Plus, you know, we, we do have these precedents of how close can you get to uh, um, an oil rig in international waters? How close can you get to the space station? These types of things. So we have these precedents, but I could see where um, they're going to be misused, and I say gonna be misused because I think it's going to happen. To go all the way back to the beginning when you were talking about how carefully when when you hear Chinese people speak about their program, which by the way is amazing and it's moving at an amazing speed and they're doing incredible things, um, and which we helped start by kicking out some of their smarter people and sending them home. But that's a separate story for another show. They are looking at this very, very, very long term path. And it is going to be very interesting to see how, A, that works with the U.S., you know, just where I am, where you are right now, and how that meshes with complements or interferes with our plans, but then internationally. Um, so look, I'm going, to, I'm going to use that moment to talk about this for a second. How do we, without interfering with the enterprise of being able to go into space? Like I, I believe in maybe something like the Homestead Act, which you couldn't apply, but you know, look, if, if you want to go to the moon and you uh, improve, you know, five acres improve it by just being there, it's probably an improvement that you can then inherit, your kids could inherit it from you. you know? So how do you do that without enabling somebody to come in and say, I'm taking the entire far side of the moon for industrial purposes how do how do we put those two together to enable individuals to go out create something keep it in their family whatever and stop corporate land grabs or governmental land grabs how do we do those two things
1: so i'm gonna um
0: oh i'm i'm sorry but i just looked at the clock we're gonna take a break i want that answer when we come back okay I'm having so much fun with you. I'm not even okay. paying attention to the time. Here. This, is, this is one of my f- more fun shows because I love this stuff. All right. All right, listeners, you're listening to The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. And uh, we have Michelle Hanlon as our guest. We're iRock Space Radio, a part of the iHeart Radio Network. And Michelle is going to tell us how you can have a home in space and the corporations can't. All right, spacers and wannabe spacers and all spacers in between. We are back with the Space Revolution. Our guest is Michelle Hanlon, one of the best legal minds on planet Earth. And we are talking about law in space, property rights in space, what you can and can't do in space and who you can blame for it if you screw up. No, actually. Uh, So, Michelle, I just asked you, how do you assure that somebody can go into space and perhaps build a homestead that they can, you know, hand to their children. That's, that's the key thing. It has to be heritable uh, to their kids versus how do you stop corporate land grabs or grant land grabs by nations in space? The floor is yours.
1: So I want to propose something to you, Rick, and I don't know what you, what your reaction will be, but I think the moon is something really special. I think, I think Mm -hmm. we're looking at uh, the potential for great conflict in the next 100 years because we're all trying to get to the moon and use its resources. But why do we want to do that? I don't think anybody really wants to actually live on the moon. They want to use the resources of the moon to get farther beyond. And so we're going to base for the next 100 or so years this conflict because, as you said, maybe if China gets to that water ice first, are they going to stop uh, stop other nations or individuals from doing it? I think that once we get to the point where we can get beyond the moon easily, then all of our woes will go away, right? You want that asteroid? Go get that asteroid. It's yours. Have fun. Yay! Um, you want you? You're mad at your brother? You know we're gonna we're gonna revert back to our Polynesians, right? Mad at your brother? Go find another island. Go find another planet. Um, and so you know, so we really for our job is to keep humanity from imploding over the next 200 years until we can get to all those other places so that when we have a disagreement, we literally can just pick up and move, right? So how do we prevent on, on the moon a corporation or something from from claiming that territory um, and and not, you know, for example, or taking it from, from somebody who, um, an individual or the, you can't. I mean, you, you can't. You know, the, the, when, uh, when Elon Musk wrote the or had the contract written for his Starlink, remember it said, if you are receiving Starlink services on Mars, you recognize that um, it's not bound by Earth laws. You know, and everyone said, oh, he can't do that. Well, he did it. Obviously, he can do it. You know, you can mm-hmm. go and do whatever you want. And a lot of people criticize international law because we don't have very good enforcement provisions. But I always liken it to traffic lights or stop signs. Look me in the face and tell me you've never run a stoplight. You know what's wrong. You know, if, yeah. <laughs> you know it's wrong. You know if you if you get caught, you will get a ticket. You know that it's dangerous. You know that it, you know that people get run over all the time, but you do it. But you know there would be consequences, and so that's the point of international law is to create these consequences. Now, what I think is terrifying that's happening right now is. The um, the sphere of influence that China is is building. So, for example, um, there was a Bloomberg article which talked about how now the um, launch site in Hainan is is like NASA, like Cape Canaveral. Like Chinese citizens go and flock to see it. Chinese citizens are starting to love the space program. So now the Chinese higher ups have the have the support of their people, right? Because that you know uh, patriotism and so forth. What else is China doing? China is spending a ton of money in the United Nations. They are giving money away in South South America, in Africa. They are inviting countries to just use their space station. What are they doing? They're building placencies. So when China does something that is gray, they they get up there and they say, no, we really want a 20 kilometer radius around our operated, operating mine here. All these other nations are like, oh, China was good to us. Okay. We're not going to complain, mm. and that's where we're going to lose um, that that freedom, is because they're bu- they're building this sort of coalition. And uh, there's somebody in China right now on a radio program saying the United States is building this coalition. They're just calling it Artemis. So you know, of course, one is based in a democracy, the other's not, um, and so. But we won't we won't go down that path right now. But the I personally think that. That we need to we need to manage the resources of the moon in a sustainable way, and we need to figure out how to do that right now. And and then Damn. I, you know, what what are we going to see? Think about Antarctica, right? We it started with research stations, and and now tourists go. It's going to be the same thing on the moon. You're going to have a research station, then you're going to have a family that's going to go and and. You know, maybe they they are the chefs for everybody. Everyone's going to flock you know. Everyone's going to get their food from them or something. And so we'll build a sort of smallish community that way. I would love to see that community on the moon remain small and and really just focus on getting beyond uh, the moon and beyond our solar system. It's not, living on the moon is not going to be a pleasant experience. It's just not, you know, everything on the moon wants to kill you. The regolith, you know, the vacuum, the cold, the heat, it's not, that's not, that's not a good life, but we need hardy souls who are willing to put the time in to mine the resources and get us off and let's find another planet where we can be happy.
0: I could, I could make the same argument for Manhattan, but I won't. Um, (laughs) So it's the taxi drivers and no, I'm kidding. So I'm with you on it. And I, I, I'm, there's an idea to be teased out here again. We'll have a a separate conversation because we're going to run out of time today and I got to get to couple of really important questions for you. But, you know, I have a thing called the Space Declaration that was actually cited, uh, whatever, back during the debate about Elon. And I'm actually going to be publishing it as a little booklet here uh, at some point. But I talk about, it's kind of this combination of the libertarian, go do anything you want, article one people talking about. And then, you know, we have to respect sacred places and things like that. And one of the interesting arguments, and I, seriously, we're going to have to have another show on this, is that the face of the moon um, that we see from the earth is arguably a sacred space. Right. Um, And one of my arguments has been, so whatever you want to do on the far side, I don't care, you know, Uh, but just don't, don't mess up this side. You're saying the entire moon itself. uh, So maybe just the earth moon system is considered one piece of territory. And then anything beyond that, the creeping of that, in other words, oh, well, but, but now we can't do anything to Mars. Now we can't do it. But that's where we would have to like draw mm-hmm. the next line, right? Is, is that what you say? I,
1: I completely agree with that. I would I would definitely draw a line at the moon uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, as you said, it's our closest neighbor, and you can see it with your naked eye. You can see the craters. Um, you with a, a a rather inexpensive telescope, you can you can really just see that magnificent desolation. Um, Mm -hmm. Mars is a little red dot. I mean, come on, there's, there's no way you can argue from a cultural heritage standpoint, from a human relations standpoint that, um, Mars is somehow something special to us. And Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, so let's take your question then and move it from the moon to Mars. How can an individual article 17 of the, of the UN declaration of human rights, I can own property. Um, how can we make sure that we can own property on Mars? That's going to just be, that's going to be precedent. That's, that's, that's why we want Elon Mars to get there first. Elon Mars. I did listen to that. I Elon like that. Musk. I like that. <laughs> Elon Mars. <laughs> Trademark. Elon <laughs>
0: Mars. No, I agree with you. And look, so we're not going to have time to get into all that. We've got to come back. We're going to have a longer conversation. Um, you and I are going to have some offline conversations too. Um, you've actually just changed a little bit of what i was going to put in my, my book here that I'm working on. Fantastic. So. Now we're going to have some serious questions, serious stuff. No, I, I love doing this, uh, uh, asking some of these fun questions. So, Michelle, you're flying over the moon, which you have now protected through treaties. Uh, several thousand clicks. You're able to see the motion. We're flying over it. What music would you listen to?
1: So I am going to be honest because that is truly the hardest question that, you, that you've asked me. I am not a musical person, and I I was really stumped, and so I'm going to go with silence. I I, I want to feel the silence of space, that vacuum, maybe hear the word and know that my rocket's working properly. But I think I think that I would not. There's there's not any composer, musician, artist that I can think of that would be able, in my mind, be able to meet the majesty of the lunar surface.
0: There you go. There you go. You're the second person to say that, and that's one of the better answers. There are, well, there's no wrong answer, but that's yeah. one of the ones that it's it's pithy. It's it's pithy, Michelle. You're a very pithy person. And So um, speaking of pithy, what's your favorite science fiction book? Ender's Game. You have one.
1: Ender's Game. Absolutely. Yeah. Really? Um, wow. Okay. Okay.
0: Uh, I've gotten to know Orson Scott Card. Very interesting I got to fellow. meet
1: him at New Worlds. So I was so excited. Yep.
0: Yeah, he's he's a he's a, he's an interesting fellow. These older science fiction writers like him, and I met Heinlein and Clark, and them they're just so deep. They're just so deep, you know. And you just you're talking to them, and you can feel it. Science fiction film or TV? I,
1: I'm um, fundamentally an original Star Trek person. I mean, that's that's that is what introduced me to space, um, and that is always my go-to in terms of I, I love I love the campiness of it. Um, I love I love James T Kirk always uh, the favorite captain no hands down no question I I used to watch that um, and, and my my mom is Chinese my dad is Polish I grew up I was a foreign service brat I grew up in Africa and always everyone around me was always very different looking you know I didn't when I got to I was sent to a boarding school here in Connecticut. Uh, when I was 13 years old, we were living in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, and I got here and I was, I was amazed. Everyone was white. I'm like, who are these people? Where did they come from? You know, but, but the, the Star Trek vision was just my world. That was, that was mm-hmm. it. And, and that is, that is what keeps me going. I'm I'm not so rose tinted that I think we're going to have Star Trek. I don't, I just, I don't see, I don't see a legal path to start to a Star Trek world. Um, mm-hmm. but but that is what I, that is what I work for.
0: Okay. legal path past Star Trek world. There's a conference session right there. So no, I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm totally pro Star Trek. And uh, although I like the new captain, he's kind of cool. But anyway, uh, maybe we'll get him at one of our new world's conferences. We'll see. Perfect then. And is there a nonfiction book that inspired you? It doesn't have to be space, but is there just a, a
1: nonfiction book? Oh, that's an that, interesting. That wasn't on the cheat sheet of questions that you asked me. Um, yeah, I know, I know, I know. No, <laughs> there's, there's no cheat sheet.
0: Okay. <laughs> no, go ahead. Is there is there one you, you've thought of that that like changed your life, or is there kind of sent you into a different trajectory over time?
1: Uh, this is going to sound really hokey, but it's mm-hmm. the it's the truth. Um, it's the Federalist Papers. Whoa. You know. Yeah, I mean, and I don't, I don't pick it up and read it at night. I find especially now that we're trying to figure out governance in space, that I go back and look at those all the time, and and see how how they teased out the older philosophers and what they thought about in terms of rights and property and so forth. I mean, that's just the the wealth of knowledge and the way they thought, and, and you know, and I don't know is it because they didn't have TV, they just had so much time to think. But we don't think that way anymore,
0: right? Right. I mean, one of my favorite—well, it's not one of my favorite writers or heroes—is, uh, and I've been told that, you know, I'm I'm obviously a fan of his, and that is uh, Thomas Paine from the same period of time, um, who basically ran around starting revolutions in France and then here and then whatever in UK all over the place. Um, yeah, the the minds of that time as they were. Closing in on each other around the world, um, and the ideas that were just churning around. I do attribute ninety percent of it to the mass, the mass discovery of coffee. I, th- I think that's where. Okay. They, they, basically humanity was drunk all the way, you know, because they had to <laughs> distill, and then they discovered coffee, and it was like, oh, I oh yes, yeah, so I up, yeah, okay. oh, we can do this. Oh, 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 gravity, look, gravity, yeah. oh. oh. You know, so anyway, uh well, look, I, I have to tell you, Michelle, this has been fascinating. Um, yeah, we, we maybe I'll do some topic specific shows or something. We could have a a discussion about some of these things because I think these are huge questions, and you are as much a pioneer as Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or any of the others, because you are going into unknown places, undiscovered places, and you're going to be creating the paths. And what is not the path and defining the difference between the two. And that is so, so critical as we move out there. Law cannot be an afterthought this time. Policy cannot be an afterthought, which is basically what it is in human history. You know, things happen and then we're like, Oh, well, there ought to be a law, right? You're working it so that we can do it the right way. And I respect that hugely. So thank you so much for coming. And, um, uh, look forward to talking to you on and offline in the future. Okay, spacers, that's all the law you're going to get. We have one rule here, and that is that at the end of the show, I tell you that we are out the airlock.
1: You've been listening to the Space Revolution Podcast with Rick Tumlinson, a production of iRock Space Radio. Go to iRockSpaceRadio.com for more.